for water shall break forth in the wilderness, streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool, the thirsty ground, springs of water. Would you please pray with me? May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. It's a thing that takes place far more often than I would like. Someone wanders into my office, they start to share something, and before long they say something to the effect of, why did this happen? Why did this happen? Why do Russian forces continue to attack civilians in Ukraine, killing innocents daily? Why did my cells mutate into a cancer that is trying to kill me? Why? Why would my husband choose to hurt me so much? Why? These are all Advent questions. Why? Of course, we've got the lights and the cocoa. Some of us already have presents wrapped up under the tree. We're putting together menus for when the relatives come into town. We've got all this stuff going on, and yet we all know that not all is as it ought to be. Even if you feel like your life is perfect, let me assure you, it is not. But even if you feel like it is perfect in some way, spend one minute watching the nightly news and you are likely to be bombarded, not with all that is right with the world, but all that is wrong with the world. Why? Why is the world so broken? What can we, that is the church, say about all the sorrow and the waste and the pain and the grief and the vengefulness that populates the evening news and keeps us awake at night? What can we say? Why? John the Baptist had these exact same questions. He prayed out in the wilderness. He, he prepared the way. He called for the baptism of the repentance of sins. He talked about the one to follow. But his talk was so incendiary, downright revolutionary, that the powers and the principalities thought the only way to shut this guy up is to lock him up in jail. And it's while he's in jail that John starts to wonder about his cousin Jesus. You saw a picture of him sitting there. It's dimly lit, and he's sitting in his cell all by himself. And he, he says... You know, Jesus he seems like the Messiah. He walks like the Messiah. He talks like the Messiah. He quacks like the Messiah. Yeah, where, where's all the grand and messianic stuff that the scriptures talked about? Why isn't Jesus more like me? So John sends, way, sends word by way of his disciples to Jesus. And he says, hey, cuz, are you the real deal? Or is there someone else that we're waiting for? And Jesus, of course, answers in his own weird way. He says to his disciples, Hey, you tell my cousin what you've seen and heard. The blind see, the lame walk, the deaf hear, and the poor have good news. Notably, Jesus isn't just making this up. He has, in fact, done those things. But more, more than that, he is quoting Isaiah. He is telling John the scripture that Judy just read for us. To text from 700 years before the time of Christ, 700 years before John got locked up in prison, Isaiah is coming back into the present. Jesus, by way of his disciples, is saying to John, Look, I am the one to come and I have already arrived. The kingdom is breaking in, J the B. You've set your sights too low. You want to overthrow the empire of Rome. I've come to overthrow the empire of sin and death. It's already started because I am here. I am the kingdom in the flesh. This proclamation, the blind see, the lame walk, the deaf hear, it's a recurring theme in Scripture. Isaiah has a glimpse of it. 
Jesus preaches on it in his very first sermon. He enacts it in the flesh. The disciples witness it. He tells John about it. It's what we call the ministry of divine inversion. It's no different than Isaiah talking about streams in the desert or the hills being brought low, the valleys lifted up. God upends all things. God turns the world upside down. God makes a way where there is no way. And yet, Jesus' answer to his cousin, his point, uh, his, his pointing to the work that's been made manifest in his own flesh is somewhat incomplete. I mean, the rugged and the bold faith of Advent compels us to admit that something is amiss. Yes, Jesus healed a few blind people, but only a few. Yes, Jesus fed the hungry and cured the sick, but how many? How many people are still blind and deaf and hungry? The signs of the inbreaking kingdom, the work of the Lord then and now, is not complete. That's the strange tension of Advent, of living between the already and the not yet, of being stuck, as Auden said, in the time being. The kingdom of God is mysterious. It's mysterious. Mysteries are fundamentally unsatisfying. Imagine it's Christmas morning and the person you love most in the world has given you a murder mystery novel. Except when you get turned to the back, they've ripped out the last chapter of the book. Can you imagine anything more infuriating than being given a mystery without a conclusion? But that's the kingdom of God. We, of course, are not content to rest under the shadow of the unexplained. We want answers to our questions. We want explanations. And so we bring expectations to Jesus all the time. Not unlike John did from the bars. We want to know why. And more often than not, Jesus answers with a mystery. Preachers like me are forever looking for stories of where the gospel hits the road, where it hits us in our hearts, deep, deep in our hearts. And sometimes those stories, they arrive from unexpected places. There is a, an actor and comedian. His name is... Rob Delaney. He's known for his bit parts on various films and shows. He was on a British comedy called Catastrophe. He was also one of the stars in a movie called Deadpool 2, but I know no one here has ever seen that movie because we're all good Methodists. We would never see an R-rated comic book movie, heaven forbid. His name is Rob Delaney. He's made a career out of making people laugh. And this week, Delaney has been making the daytime and the late night TV circuit promoting a new memoir that he wrote. The title is A Heart That Works. A Heart That Works. The title comes from a song lyric. A heart that hurts is a heart that works. It's a strange title for a memoir from a comedian. The book tells of Delaney's experience of profound loss and pain. This picture destroys me. His third son... His name was Henry. That's him chewing on his son's ear. Delaney said in an interview this week, if you want to be a good parent, you have to put your kid's ears in your mouth all the time. When his son Henry was a year old, he got sick, very sick. And it took him a long time to figure out what was going on and eventually discovered that he had a brain tumor at the back of his head. He had to have extremely invasive surgery right away and had to undergo chemotherapy at a year old. It was so intense it left him disabled. For the next year and a half, he was in and out of the hospital with more treatments. And when he was two and a half, the tumor returned and he died. And Delaney 
asked again and again why he chose to write his memoir about this thing, his son's death. Again and again, he has answered the same way. He said, when my son died, it felt like I got taken away from humanity, that my humanity was taken from me, and I could not figure out how to return. He said, the only way I could return was by writing this book. So day after day, Delaney has sat down for interview after interview in which he has been forced to relive something that no one should ever have to experience, the death of his child. So this week, he was sitting down for a conversation on CBS Mornings, and Delaney interrupted the program. They were in the middle of asking him a question, and he turned across the table to Gail King, and he said, Gail, you came up to me this morning, but before we did the interview, we were in the green room, and you asked me questions about my son, and you started to cry, and you hugged me, and you offered me a beautiful human response. I want you to know it's the best thing that's happened to me in days. Gail King, unflappable Gail King, she stares back at him with this bewildered look on her face, and she, she almost yells, how can that be true? How can anything good happen to you? And Delaney said, you had a genuine response. I don't want people to ask me these perfunctory questions and then say, oh, I'm sorry about your grief, and then move on to talk about the weather as if nothing happened. I want people to cry because my boy is dead. I'm never going to hold him again. I want people to feel that. And you had a response to me this morning that was real. It was like water to me in the desert. It was beautiful. It was like water to me in the desert. Who knew that the prophet Isaiah was going to show up through a comedian on CBS Mornings this week? Water in the desert. And what makes this all the more extraordinary is the fact that Delaney doesn't believe in anything. He's an atheist. He talks about it all the time. Except later this week, while he was on the Late Show with Stephen Colbert, Colbert, of course, pushed him to reflect on what the grief has done to him. And Delaney said, it's a really big problem for me that as an atheist, my faith organ has been growing in the years after my son's death. Water in the desert. Now, I think we tend to treat grief like a plague. We stay away from it. We close our doors to it. We pretend we don't have it. And when we do have it, we do everything we can to get rid of it. Except grief, grief is a good thing. Grief is just unexpressed love. Grief is how love perseveres. It's Advent. It's the time we put all this stuff up in our sanctuaries and we light the tree and we sing the songs and we light the candles. And as I said, today is the Sunday for joy. We light the pink, the rose candle to celebrate the joy we have with God. And I think it's a bit odd that we keep lighting this pink candle year after year. Because it seems like every time we get to the third Sunday of Advent, something terrible happens. How can we be joyful when the world looks like it does? How can someone like Rob Delaney be joyful about anything? Grief is a hole that no matter what we do or try, it cannot be filled. No number of presents under the tree, no amount of words can make right what is done. 
And we are bold to light that pink candle. We light it not as a denial of the realities of life. We light it because joy is something that is done to us. Joy is what happens when we dare to trust God to do for us that which we cannot do for ourselves. Joy is what happens when we're able to look at what we have and had and know that all of it, whether it was good or bad, it actually came as a gift. The fact that we have something instead of nothing. Joy is what happens whenever we encounter water in the deserts of our grief. We weep with others. We rejoice with others. Does it fix everything? Does it set everything right? What good is a cup of water in the desert? It doesn't get rid of the desert. And yet, the mystery of God's activity in the world is that even the tiniest signs of faith and love and mercy and hope, they're all pointers to the glory that will come when the Lord comes to make all things new. The hope of Advent of all time is that what we have now is not all there is. That's why we have the lights and the prayers and the songs, because they point us to the greater reality that beats on our lives every day, that God loves us and that this is not the end. I don't know if this was the sermon you expected to hear this morning. I can assure you it was not the sermon I expected to write and offer to you earlier in the week, and yet here we are. And I think it's good because we worship the God of the unexpected. The God who provides water in a place like the desert. The God who lifts up valleys and brings down mountains. The God who takes on flesh and is born as a baby among us. The God who mounts the hard wood of the cross for us. The God who breaks forth from the empty tomb and returns to us. The proclamation of the gospel is that God comes to us in the brokenness of our health in the shipwreck of our lives, in the loss of peace and mind, in the thick of our sins, God saves us in our disasters, not from them. Isaiah says, The redeemed shall return. They will come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will be upon their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away forever. This is God's promise to us. This is the already, but the not yet. And until that comes to fruition, the least and the best we can do is be water in the desert for others. And so I offer this to you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God now and forever. Amen.